boys' IQ has dropped about 15 points since the 1980s, and make a case in your book that that's related to fatherlessness. Boys scored lower than girls in the 63 largest developed nations in which the PISA, a set of international standard tests, was given. Boys are 50% more likely than girls to fail to meet basic proficiency in any of the three core subjects of reading, math, and science. By eighth grade in the U.S., 40% of girls are at least proficient in writing compared to one in five boys. Boys who perform as well as girls are graded less favorably. Boys have gone from 61% of university degrees to 39%. Girls, the reverse. Percent of boys who say they don't like school has gone up 70% since 1980. Boys are expelled from school three times as often and girls as girls. One in three children in the UK and the US grow up without a father. Are fathers necessary? For all of recorded history, the need to explain why fathers are necessary would have been regarded as, well, unnecessary. It would have been like explaining why water or air is necessary. But we live at a time in which the obvious is routinely denied. There have been articles in the most prestigious journals denying the importance of fathers. The Atlantic magazine, for example, published an article titled, are fathers necessary? A paternal contribution may not be as essential as we think. The New York Times published a discussion among five intellectuals titled, What are fathers for? One of them, Hannah Rosen, an editor at New York Magazine, opened her response by stating, I'm not sure whether a child needs a father. I could give dozens of such examples. I'll just give one more. Huff Post published a piece titled, Fathers are not needed. Fortunately, this dismissal of the importance of fathers is not universal. In a 2008 Father's Day speech, a few months before his election as President of the United States, Barack Obama said, Fathers are critical to the foundation of each family. That they are teachers and coaches, they are mentors and role models, they are examples of success, and they are the men who constantly push us toward it. What makes his comments particularly noteworthy is that Barack Obama grew up without a father. Both boys and girls need fathers. We'll begin with boys. A boy has no built-in understanding about how to be a man, meaning a good and responsible man. Male nature is wild, most obviously regarding sex and violence. If a boy does not have a father who models how a man controls himself, he will most likely not know how to control himself, let alone want to. That's why most males in prison for violent crimes grew up without a father. After days of riots in the UK in 2011, quite like the 2020 riots in America, Christina Adone wrote a column for the London Telegraph, whose title says it all. London riots, absent fathers have a lot to answer for. In the column, she wrote, The majority of rioters are gang members. Like the overwhelming majority of youth offenders behind bars, these gang members have one thing in common, no father at home. There's no question that many mothers have done an excellent job raising a boy without their son's father. But common sense alone suggests that a mother simply cannot model what a boy should be any more than a man can model to a girl what a woman should be. And then there is the issue of controlling boys and their wild natures. 
Again, there are mothers who are able to do this. But if a boy is at all difficult, as so many are, as he gets older, most mothers will find it more and more difficult to control their son. Because unruly boys listen to their fathers much more than they listen to their mothers. Which is precisely why most violent criminals grew up in fatherless homes. They obviously did not listen to their mothers. As regards daughters, the father is the man girls learn to relate to. Without a father to relate to and bond with, there are at least two destructive consequences. First, she will not know how to choose a man wisely. She will not know how a man should treat her. And she may well end up with a man who mistreats her. Second, to fulfill her desire to bond with a man, as primally yearning in most women as bonding with a woman is in most men, she will go from man to man. Girls without fathers in their lives are far more likely to be sexually promiscuous and to begin sexual activity at an earlier age, which in turn are reasons many young women are depressed. Few women find sleeping with man after man fulfilling. Most find it ultimately depressing. Finally, fathers give both sons and daughters the thing children need most, a sense of safety and security. As much as children need love, they need a sense of security even more. And in general, moms give love and dads give security. I learned how necessary fathers are, not only by having one and being one, but by the many people, men and women, of all ages, who have told me that they see me as a father figure. I am honored to fill that role. The good news is that many men can fill it. Grandfathers, uncles, teachers, mentors, clergy, and yes, even a man on the radio. But some man has to be your father. I'm Dennis Prager. Years ago, I interviewed Kwesi Nfume, then the president of the NAACP. As between the presence of white racism and the absence of black fathers, I asked him, which poses the bigger threat to the black community? Without missing a beat, he said, the absence of black fathers. It was President Barack Obama who said, we all know these statistics, that children who grow up without a father are five times more likely to live in poverty and commit crime, nine times more likely to drop out of school, and 20 times more likely to end up in prison. The Journal of Research on Adolescence confirms that even after controlling for varying levels of household income, kids in father-absent homes are more likely to end up in jail, and kids who never had a father in the house are the most likely to wind up behind bars. In 1960, 5% of America's children entered the world without a mother and father married to each other. By 1980, it was 18%. By 2000, it had risen to 33%, and 15 years later, the number reached 41%. For blacks, even during slavery when marriage for slaves was illegal, black children were more likely than today to be raised by both their mother and father. Economist Walter Williams has written that, according to census data from 1890 to 1940, a black child was more likely to grow up with married parents 
than a white child. For blacks, out-of-wedlock births have gone from 25% in 1965 to 73% in 2015. For whites, from less than 5% to over 25%. And for Hispanics, out-of-wedlock births have risen to 53%. What happened to fathers? The answer is found in a basic law of economics. If you subsidize undesirable behavior, you will get more undesirable behavior. In 1949, the nation's poverty rate was 34%. By 1965, it was cut in half to 17%, all before President Lyndon Johnson's so-called War on Poverty. But after that war began in 1965, poverty began to flatline. From 1965 until now, the government has spent over $20 trillion to fight poverty. The poverty rate has remained unchanged, but the relationship between poor men and women has changed dramatically. That's because our generous welfare system allows women, in effect, to marry the government. And this makes it all too easy for men to abandon their traditional moral and financial responsibilities. Psychologists call such dependency learned helplessness. How do we know that the welfare state creates disincentives that hurt the very people we're trying to help? They tell us. In 1985, the Los Angeles Times asked both the poor and the non-poor whether poor women often have children to get additional benefits. Most of the non-poor respondents said no. However, 64% of poor respondents said yes. Now, who do you think is in a better position to know? Tupac Shakur, the late rapper, once said, I know for a fact that had I had a father, I'd have some discipline, I'd have more confidence. He admitted he began running with gangs because he wanted the things a father gives to a child, especially to a boy. Structure and protection. Your mother cannot calm you down the way a man can, Shakur said. You need a man to teach you how to be a man. In my book, Dear Father, Dear Son, I write about my rough, tough World War II Marine Staff Sergeant Dad. Born in the Jim Crow South of Athens, Georgia, he was 14 at the start of the Great Depression. Growing up, I watched my father work two full-time jobs as a janitor. He also cooked for a rich family on the weekends and somehow managed to go to night school to get his GED. When I was 10, my father opened a small restaurant that he ran until he retired in his mid-80s. He was never angry or bitter and insisted that today's America was very different from the world of racial segregation and limited opportunity in which he grew up. Hard work wins, he told me and my brothers. You get out of life what you put into it. You can't control the outcome, but you are 100% in control of the effort. And before blaming other people, go to the nearest mirror and ask yourself, what could I have done to change the outcome? This advice shaped my life. Fathers matter. Until we have a government policy that makes that its first priority, nothing will change. I'm Larry Elder for Prager University. What kind of relationship do you have with your father, your real father? It's often ambivalent, right? Because there's an element of him that encouraged you, hopefully, because without the encouragement of your father, man, the world is a dismal place. It's very difficult to be a courageous person unless you have your father in, in body and spirit behind you. It's very de demoralizing. 
like it really kills people not to have their mother they just don't recover from that but and and i think people can recover from a fragmented father relationship but it's the next worst thing you know because if your father rejects you or doesn't form a relationship with you it's as if the spirit of civilization has left you outside the walls as of little worth it's very difficult for people to recover from that so the father should be an encouraging force but can be a tyrannical and crushing force and so that's very that's a very difficult thing to get right partly because if you're my son then i should impose the highest standards of behavior on you and i should always be judging what you're doing i should be judging it with with the aim of making the best in you come forward but but getting that balance exactly right is very difficult and so it's easy to for a father to swing too much into judgment let's say and then of course mothers can play this role too to swing too far into the domain of judgment and to be too harsh and to the degree that the father has his own pathologies he's going to do that imperfectly well my father's a formidable person and like he was he was really he's really 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 good with little kids mm -hmm. we had a lot of friction when i was a teenager and that took some time to sort out but there were complicated reasons for that mm -hmm. very some of them involved ill health of various sure. sorts and teenage stupidity and you know some intransigence on his part because he's quite a stubborn person but he's both my parents i've been blessed with my parents because they're very they're extraordinarily honest people. I can't think of a time and this is literally the truth. I can't think of a time when I believe that my parents lied to me about anything. Mm -hmm. And and that's a great gift. The other thing that my father bequeathed to me, I would say, when I was a child was an unshakable confidence that I could do what I put my mind to, put my efforts to. Mm -hmm. You know, and he truly believed that and there's some that's lodged inside me as a like an unshakable foundation so so one of the things you can think about this when your parents do and this is probably especially relevant for the men because one of the things you might ask is what role do men play in the socialization of children and one thing that men really do seem to do with kids is to engage in rough and tumble play especially once they're a little older than two say two to five or something and kids love that they absolutely love rough and tumble play gets them so excited that you know they get out of control fundamentally but rough and tumble play is an excellent mode of socialization because it teaches the child the, dis the distinction between aggression and too much aggression right because if you're wrestling with a kid the kid has to keep their behavioral output under a fair degree of control to keep the game going to make it rough enough to be exciting but not so rough that they get hurt or you know that they stick their thumb in their dad's eye or something like that and you, you can think of that from a Piagetian sense too because it's a game but imagine that if you're trying to figure out how to configure yourself around other people, if you haven't had that rough and tumble play, you don't really know where the boundaries of your body are, you know, and, and you don't know how much you can take and how much you can be stretched and how much you can be thrown around and when something actually hurts rather than is frightening. And so all of that intense sort of play that, that, um, that boys in particular are likely to engage in, although girls also like it, seems to be very useful for teaching children about how to engage with the world but, and with other people in a physical way, and that's one of the physiological foundations for higher order socialization. So it's very useful. I mean, I've, I've always often noted that children who haven't had the opportunity to engage in physical play, they're kind of awkward. You know, they, they're not 
they're not seated well in their body and it's like they're kind of vague physically whereas the ones who've been twisted around and bent and thrown up in the air and you know wrestled in general they're a lot more conscious of their limits and their abilities in their body and they're also much more able to invite other kids to play now Richard also asked how can I talk about the resentments of my childhood in a way that benefits them instead of giving them guilt see what I would ask if you came to talk to me and you had that question I would say first of all well what resentments list them out man write them down okay so that you know what they are because all those each of those resentments is going to be a different thing and the strategy that's associated with each might vary as a consequence of the particularity of the resentment so i would say you should start by writing them down like what's your problem exactly here here's all the things that i can think of that i'm angry about with regard to my childhood write that down and then see which ones are are still living and then you have to figure out well what do you want from your parents exactly do you do you want them to apologize do you want them to understand what they did wrong do you want to punish them do you want to get let them get you let them learn to know you better do you want to change the way they're interacting with you now do you want to learn your own lessons from your bad experience so that when you're a parent you don't make the same mistake do you merely want to have a chance to express yourself like what are the resentments so we can walk through the process we already described lay them out and comprehensively you might want to make a list of everything that you think you might conceivably be annoyed about with regards to your parents no matter how trivial right because that that way you you scour your memory for things that you're holding on to in a bitter way and maybe you have your justification i'm not suggesting that you don't but you need to discover what baggage you're carrying then you have to figure out well what can i let go of and what's core and i would say what's really core is if there are ways that your parents treated you that are still affecting you or that are affecting your relationships with them now those really need to be dealt with because they're not done they're not in the past right they're not even resentments of your childhood they're still part of your ongoing life okay so now you have all your resentments laid out i guess i would say you know something like look mom and dad there's there's something i need to talk to you about that's been bothering me for a long time and i pick one of the more trivial things to begin with like here's a memory i have and don't get all high and mighty about it because you know you might have misconstrued the situation as a child it's highly probable and they may have had their reasons and you may not even remember the situation let's say correctly or the way they remember it you say well here's here's something that happened when i was a kid and it it still bothers me and do you remember what happened that's an open ended question do you remember what happened why did this why did this go this way and then i would do an awful lot of listening you know because you are trying to gather information and the more your parents can tell you about what happened in those situations i would say the better off you're likely to be if we could extirpate the dysfunctional underclass culture and that is something that is tearing down uh blacks potential to succeed by embracing this 
oppositional culture that says that academic effort and achievement is anti, is acting white. It glorifies criminality, uh, glorifies conspicuous consumption, misogyny, maximal uh, procreation, you know, having as many children as you can by different baby mamas. If we could get, uh, I would say, an intervention that was maybe focused less on the cognitive matters and more on simply deferring gratification, self-control, the types of, of issues that, that uh, Edward Banfield wrote about in The uh, Unheavenly City, that that would be the most important thing to focus on, because I'm not sure that efforts to change the cognitive skills gap will be that successful over time. But but really, all we ask is people to respect the law uh, and to to restrain their impulses. And as you pointed out, the, the data for, let's say, uh, the Head Start enterprise does indicate very clearly that these wide-scale attempts to increase general cognitive ability did not succeed. What you saw with Head Start was that the children who went through Head Start were more likely to be in the proper grade for their age, and they were more likely to graduate from high school, and they were less likely to become pregnant in teenagehood. But that hope for expanding boost of cognitive ability as a consequence of early childhood intervention did uh, it occurred in the immediate aftermath of the Head Start experience, but was obliterated as a general rule by grade six. All the other kids caught up. And so then there's only two places to go from there. And one is to go even earlier into the intervention, um, which means you start taking kids away from their family in some real sense at the age of, let's say, two or even earlier, and that's a rat's nest and a nightmare of its own accord, or to understand that, as you pointed out, that there are other um, socioeconomic um, variables that might be focused on. I think one of the most interesting ones biologically is likely fatherlessness. Like we do know, for example, that girls who don't have a father will hit puberty on average at least a year earlier, which is substantially earlier. And that indicates a real biological impact of the lack of a masculine figure in the household, because that's a walloping um, physiological difference. We know that boys who have lack of father at the age of 12 have telomeres. uh, So this is a genetic difference that are on average something approximating 15% shorter, which means that all other things being equal, they're already doomed to a much shorter life. And so, well, and so we don't know what the pervasive multi-generational consequences of the breakdown in familial structure in the final analysis are. I mean, it, it does appear that the black population has fallen behind on the family integration and stability front since the early 1960s rather than making advances. And it doesn't look like that's good for anyone concerned, given the absolute wealth of data showing how pervasive a problem at every level fatherlessness happens to be. We also have no idea what the consequence of fatherlessness is on the development of general cognitive ability across time. 
Uh, there might be a literature on that I, that I don't happen to be familiar with, but it's, it is certainly the case that that's another place we might look if we were trying to bolster social stability and eradicate some of the um, pervasive differences in, in uh, what would you say, general psychological well-being that seem to be associated with race. Well, yeah, I mean, you're, I think you're uh, un- underplaying this as how, how bad it is. You know, when Daniel Patrick Moynihan wrote his astoundingly present report in the 1960s warning that the country was about to screech to a dead halt with regards to further civil rights progress, uh, his reason was not a resurgence of white racism or changing ec- economic positions in the country, uh, opportunities in the country. His reason was what he saw at the time as a catastrophic breakdown in the black family. At that point, when, D- when Moynihan wrote this report, the out-of-wedlock birth rate for blacks was 23%. And Moynihan said that with that number of young black males growing up in single-family homes without fathers to socialize them, to civilize them, growing up without the expectation of a marriage culture, this population is doomed. It, it You will not get out of underclass poverty culture, gang culture. Well, what, what are we at today? We're at 71% uh, of, of what Moynihan was raising an alarm about. So three times higher about. And so it is absolutely at civilization-destroying levels. And what is as bad, and we know, you say we don't know the cognitive uh, consequences of that. That's probably true. But we certainly have ample data on the fact that kids growing up in single-parent family homes are four or five times as likely to be poor. You know, you say you'd be better off being born with a smart parent than a rich parent. I would say you're better being better off being born with two parents than one welfare-supported single mother who happens to have a larger government income than two working class married parents that are maybe pulling in $25,000 a year. You still, if you're in a Rawlsian position of choosing where you want to end up, you choose the two-parent family over the wealthy single mother. Um, so things are really bad. Uh, but the problem is, how do you fix it? And people like you and I have been going around talking about the problem of single parenting. And, and I was just going to add, the problem is not just for the individual, uh, child and growing up without a father, but when boys are raised in a culture that does not expect them to get married before they have children, they are absolved of the types of expectations that can help them become functioning males. And I know I'm in your territory here, Jordan, and talking about how do you civilize the the savage male libido. But one way you do so is say, if you want to make yourself a plausible mate, you have to learn to defer gratification. You have to learn to have future orientation. And when you're growing up in an inner city and it is absolutely the norm that you can start Having sex with girls at age 12, they may or may not get pregnant, but you will have no further responsibilities. There is no reason to develop those 
those skills of self-control that make you a plausible worker, a plausible husband, a plausible colleague in any kind of voluntary association. So that's the problem. The solution, though, is extremely difficult uh, because, as I've been reprimanded in the past by Deborah Dickerson, the relationship between the sexes in the Black community is very, very troubled. Prison time, homelessness, drug abuse and alcoholism, neglect, domestic violence, single parenthood, teen pregnancy, dropping out of school. What do all of these issues have in common? Well, if you grow up in this country without a father, you are more likely to experience all of them. Right now in America, we are experiencing an epidemic of absent fathers. Now, I already know what some of you might be thinking. I've already heard this covered by the media on both sides of the aisle, and this is simply a black issue. But what if I told you that fatherlessness is an issue that affects every single one of us in more ways than we can ever possibly know. How did we get here? And is there anything that we can do about it? Let's break it down. My parents got divorced when I was around six years old, and suddenly I was just seeing my father less and less. Weekly visits became monthly visits, became talking to each other once a year. That was my new normal, familiar strangers. To be honest, it didn't really affect me that much. One parent was enough, but I would come to find out later in life that I happened to be super lucky. Not because I didn't need anything from my dad or that there was nothing that he could truly give me, but because I managed to escape some of the horrific outcomes that can be attached to growing up with an absent father. So what are these outcomes? Well, I found that when compared to children from two-parent households, fatherless kids had a two times greater chance of infant mortality. They were more likely to face and perpetrate abuse and neglect. They were more likely to experience obesity. They were more likely to become pregnant as teens, more likely to drop out of school, more likely to abuse drugs, and more likely to go to prison. And those are just a few of the negative outcomes that we can trace back to fatherlessness. Imagine all of the things that we're missing. Now, I didn't know this, but according to Pew Research Center, the United States is the highest share of single parenting in the world. And the issue of fatherlessness in single parent households is an issue that continues to grow in this country. According to US census data, in 1968, about 15% of US kids were living in a single parent household. Jump forward to now, and that number has doubled to 30%. Now, I live in Los Angeles, a city that's notorious for running rampant with drug abuse and homelessness and crime. And oftentimes when I see these things happening right in front of my face, I fail to make the connection between that and fatherlessness when really the odds are that all of these people that we're seeing have grown up without a dad. Like I said before, many view this to be a black issue because the black population does have the largest percentage of single parent fatherless homes, about 66%. But this isn't just a black problem. In the Latino and Hispanic community, about 42% of children grow up in single parent households. For white people, this number drops to a still whopping 34% and Asians follow at 20%. So on average, about one in three American children are growing up in a single parent household. This is a problem for everyone. So how did we get here? Well, if we're looking at a single parent household, we're typically dealing with a single mom. As of 2020, there were 14.84 million families with a single mother in the United States. And you might be thinking, well, sometimes marriages don't work out. And as a result, moms are left to take care of their children. And that statement would have been true in say the 1960s where 4% of single mothers had never been married. Flash forward to today, and that has jumped to over 52%, a 13 fold increase. Meaning my mother's story of divorce and 
single motherhood now represents a minority. In today's day and age, women are getting pregnant out of wedlock and raising the children alone. This goes to show that marriage is not really just a piece of paper. Marriage is often the barrier between a single parent household and a two parent household. Not only that, it can be the barrier between poverty and success. And the numbers are stark. If you grow up with a single unwed mother, you are four times more likely to experience poverty than somebody who lived with married parents. So we know the issue, we know what these families look like, and we know we're all affected by it. So why is fatherlessness still a growing issue in this country? There's two areas we have to look at, politics and culture. Politically, the welfare system comes into the discussion. In the 1960s, some well-meaning policies were put forth that ended up not doing so well. In fact, they actually incentivized single mother households. Specifically, in 1964, President Lyndon B. Johnson launched his Great Society, an initiative with the goal of beating poverty, reducing crime, and promoting equality in America. His welfare system was very generous, particularly for single mothers, but there was one rule that ruined it all, the man in the house rule, which essentially said that if you have a working or able-bodied man living in your house, we cannot help you. They even went as far as to send federal agents to these households to make sure that no man was living there. If I was a mom at the time, I would throw the man out of the house too to get that check. These things don't exactly promote marriage. This is exactly why we shouldn't judge policies based on their intentions, but actually on their results. And these results don't bode well. Speaking of things that don't bode well, culturally, radical feminism in Hollywood has completely destroyed the view of not only the American man, but the American dad. It is now a commonly held belief that men are toxic in nature and oppressive forces of patriarchy that must be overcome. Not exactly a person you'd want to marry or have kids with. In Hollywood, young girls have gotten used to watching these ever-present archetypal characters like Dumb Dad, A-Hole Boyfriend, Prince Charming, who doesn't exist, and the dreaded Girl Boss. A woman who is a subpar man, values her career over her family, is sexually promiscuous, and utterly unattached. If I got paid every time I heard the whole I don't need a man thing, I'd be the one buying Twitter. It seems as though feminism values single motherhood over married parenting. Couple our cultural problems with our political ones and you have a recipe for disaster. These two things clearly explain the situation that we find ourselves currently living in. <sighs> so you know everything now except for what can be done. For starters, we need a culture that values good men, good fathers, and good role models. Can you imagine how our perception of men would change if the media started showing good, well-rounded men taking on the responsibility of fatherhood? We need to step away from the toxic masculinity narrative and into one that values the inherent traits that men have. Politically, we should be looking at policies that don't incentivize single motherhood. Maybe take a look at that welfare system and do a little bit of tweaking. So of course, Hollywood's not gonna start making these wonderful movies tomorrow, and we're certainly not gonna get legislation in the coming days that suddenly changes all of these problems. What can we do right now to fix this? Well, there's a lot of things that we can do as individuals. First, reject these modern narratives of radical feminism and toxic masculinity. They're clearly not leading us down a good path and not doing anything that builds a fruitful society. Accept the fact that two-parent households are ideal. And that's not to denigrate the work of single mothers and single fathers, but we should all be striving towards what is best for our children, and that is a two-parent household. And let me make this clear. We cannot wait for Hollywood or politicians to come in and fix these problems. We have to fix these problems. And the fixing starts when we celebrate, appreciate, and honor fatherhood in our country by building a new culture that has a deep-seated love for parenthood and family so that when that beautiful moment does come for them, they take on all the responsibilities that come along with it gladly. And to all the fathers and the future fathers watching this, we need you. We need you to be there as a good friend, a good role model, a good husband, a good 
dad. And you might be thinking that's way too much pressure. You don't know how to be a father, how to take on that role, and certainly not the responsibilities that come along with it. But statistically speaking, just by being there, you can change the world.